tonight, New York Dharma punks. My name is Josh. And uh, next week, instead of having our normal Tuesday, we'll have the New Year's Eve Dharma punks, which we have been doing every year. Uh, I think we'll start for those who feel like tuning in at 10 o'clock. Kathy will be leading a breath work, just a really wonderful way to get in touch with all the feelings that have amassed over the course of uh, this rather tumultuous period of time. And uh, then at 11, I'll do my own talk. And then we'll go into the precepts, set intentions, for those of you who don't have New Year's Eve plans, that that would be, uh, and I hope you would feel that to be a, a nice way to bring in a new year. So as usual, everything I do is entirely offered free by donation. And so if you would like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC, or the PayPal is on the website. Tonight's talk is going to be why the holidays can suck so hard <laughs> and what we can do about that. So uh, even if you are in good cheer this time of year, maybe you'll find some something of worthwhile in the talk. And um, certainly by the end, we'll talk about uh, tools, spiritual practices to lift up our spirits if they do indeed need any. From the moment we're born, we are entered into what could be called the social race, the tribal hierarchy competition. We are a exceedingly social species. And in fact, Dunbar has shown that the entire shape, size, volume of the brain, is largely the result of uh, allowing us to have so many socializing concerns and capabilities. So with birth, parents are anxious will fall short of normative capabilities. And from the moment we enter the educational institutions, we are continuously assessed uh, and school systems summon parents when there's even the slightest sign that we are deviating from standard developmental milestones. Children have what are uh, significant sociometric status concerns, which means their sense of self is tied not only to early caregiving attachment experiences, but also to the degree which they are liked or disliked by their peers. Um, in adolescence, our social cognitive abilities undergo such a development with the wiring of the prefrontal cortex that adolescent sensitivity to social rejection is extreme. Um, this is, of course, because 
for the bulk of evolution, our, our very survival depended upon tribal cohesion and being part of the clan. If we in any way were found to be deficient and a burden to whatever organization or affiliations we were part of, if we were uh, rejected, cast aside, we would die. Survival completely depended upon social acceptance. So it's deeply wired, as we'll talk about. Um, the demands of the social brain, as we find in cognitive neuroscience, people like uh, uh, Lieberman, uh, Kochiopo, Frith, Ashner, Naomi Eisenberger, have shown a vast array of neural circuitry ranging from, as I recall, the orbital frontal, the, temper, the temporal poles, mirror neurons, perhaps in the parietal fusiform gyrus, and of course, the prefrontal cortex, all contribute to an innate capability of viewing ourselves through the eyes of others. In other words, we perceive ourselves by comparing ourselves with others and um, uh, trying to estimate how they perceive us. And this, when we fall short, can be the result of so much emotional distress. It's see in a moment. It's quite shocking to note that uh, in my research, I found out that something like 28% of adolescent girls are excluded by a group of their peers. Um, boys use what's called relational aggression, social exclusion, interestingly, to less degrees, not because they're morally superior, but studies show that boys are just less upset with social rejection. I guess they go and play their, their games or whatever, but um, girls weaponize social exclusion. And uh, it's a real way to cause an enormous amount of pain in others. The imperative to compare ourselves socially and contrast how we're doing with what, how other people are doing is so uh, uh, considerable in as a psychic concern in humans that in 1954, Leon Festinger develop what's called the social comparison theory, in which he noted we live our lives with an ongoing internal rating systems uh, that contributes to our sense of self, where we're constantly comparing ourselves with imaginary normative expectations. And um, Festinger showed that there's two kinds of comparison. There's upward comparison when we compare ourselves with others who seem to be doing better, and that makes us feel, well, shitty, or downward comparison where we compare ourselves with others that are doing worse and we come out feeling better. Well, it turns out um, bulk of the times human beings gravitate to upwards comparison. We're constantly looking for 
searching the web and and media for images of people doing being happier than us uh because given that our greatest fear is social rejection we're constantly monitoring the world for signs that we're falling behind and then as a result courtesy of social media courtesy of TV, movies, magazines, advertisements were being bombarded with images showing people doing life in a way that seems like they're doing better. And so our fear uh, is confirmed. And there's plenty of studies showing just how strong confirmation bias is. We suspect uh, or we are constantly set up with a fear of, of falling behind others. We then look on uh, Facebook or Instagram, uh, and what we're doing unconsciously is looking for signs that other people are having better lives than us. Uh, to to, and it validates this sense that we're not doing life well enough, and then it activates what Eisen, Naomi Eisenberger showed to be the, the um, ventral medial prefrontal cortex and uh the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and a couple of things that are interesting about that one the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex is the exact region of the brain that highlights physical pain and so she demonstrated that social rejection creates an experience that's eerily similar to physical pain it's so distressing and then also uh, this region tends to activate the, the what, ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for default mode operation. Well, what's that? That's the kind of intrusive, obsessive, self-referential uh, thinking that causes us so much despair in life. In fact, um, uh, psychologists like Killingsworth and Gilbert showed that people are most unhappy when they're sitting around thinking about themselves and speculating how off, how we compare with others. So it, essentially, uh, compare and despair is a major cause of human suffering. It's why social media is so devastatingly uh, bad for uh, human feelings of well-being, sense of self. And it's also why, uh, clinically speaking, the holidays can suck so hard. Because for many, uh, there's a bombardment of images courtesy of every form of media, movies that are replayed, TVs, advertisements, people bustling in stores, um of happy people gathering in aspirational settings and the slightest sign that other people are um enjoying themselves uh can activate all these internal images we have of which we've been exposed to uh during countless uh christmas and holiday movies of families and eventually finding themselves happily back by the hearth, uh, very connected, uh, where life is very simple, 
and uh, there aren't there isn't much evidence of conflict or uh, some of the many malaise and issues that actually beset real life human beings. So the barrage of images of joyous gatherings can activate the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, triggering a sense of not only a flurry of, of uh, self-referential ideations, but just emotional pain. And unfortunately, the brain, as many neuroscientists have pointed out, is not set up to pursue contrary evidence. We have what's called mood congruence. When we feel bad, we look for more evidence of why we should feel bad. The brain thinks it's better for us to know all of the threats or all the reasons we should be depressed when we're feeling depressed, rather than looking for evidence that we're doing better than we think. The reason of that is, of course, if we were really falling behind for much of human history, if we were in risk of being kicked out of the tribe to which we belonged, it would be devastating. So it was important for us for much of human evolution to constantly monitor other people for signs that they didn't like us or that we weren't pulling our, our weight enough. These days, the, we're not going to die generally if we get uh, if we're lower on the social hierarchy or totem pole, but we will still, due to the way the brain is developed over evolution, look for evidence to confirm that we're not doing well enough. So when there isn't a, a picture-perfect gathering to attend over the holidays, it can easily result in that compare and despair and that feeling of just other people are doing it right and I'm doing it wrong. Even those who do have places to go, people to see the sense of not doing well enough can pervade the season. I remember when I grew up, uh, my, so my mother was a secular Jew and um, so she wanted us to experience uh, holidays in the way that uh, she didn't get to. She was, both my parents grew up extremely poor immigrants, you know, uh, new to America, very, very, very uh, below, uh, I mean, literally below the poverty line. And so that my mother was very uh, wanting us to have what seemed like the uh, American ideal. So she, instead of having Hanukkah, she would have a Christmas tree. My dad grew up in such a traumatic environment that he didn't want anybody to have any Christmas presents because he never got any in his life when he was growing up. And she so would sit there kind of, uh, drinking and upset that people were even bothering to celebrate it at times. But even though my mom would put on this production and try to give us uh, nice gifts, I, I was actually in a school where many of the kids were extreme, came from extremely wealthy families. And so, whereas I should have 
had a sense of, well, I'm doing much better than my parents, what inevitably would happen is I'd go back to school and hear about all the lavish gifts that the wealthy parents of my peers were bestowing upon their offspring. And it would always make me feel like I had somehow done something wrong or was not good enough, uh, even though I was really getting uh, an experience that neither of my parents could even have dreamed of. Um, but somehow, when you're a kid and you get a nice thing, but you go into school and your kid, your peer has been given a Fender guitar with a Marshall amp, and you're sitting there with your jaw on the ground. It's a little bit like today, the kid who uh, gets an, a nice uh, toy and then goes in to see his friends with iPads and iPhones and feels a sense that they're not living up to the standards of others. So there's plenty of reasons why or events that can make us feel even when we do come, we do have adequate or good environments, we can still fall into this uh, compare and despair uh, sense of somehow I'm not getting or other people are, are getting the most out of life or are just um, in a much better place than us. And it can create, activate feelings of exclusion, loneliness, a sense of, uh, of uh, bereftness or whatever. So making matters worse, uh, of course, during this time of year, the internal clock, which is right above where the optical nerves cross in the brain, uh, nucleus succulus, I think, something like that. It's the internal clock down regulates the secretion of melatonin, which in turn diminishes the the secretion of dopamine and so we get seasonal affective disorder many people at the end of the year might have accrued financial struggles or maybe sleep deprived or just during the cold winter months might not be feeling as well and of course right now we're going through an uptick of covid variants which means that many people are not able to travel uh, back home to see family members um and so all of this can be very very difficult on the other hand for some who have um issues with sensory overload and there are many people who do those that actually do have to go to gatherings might find the overstimulation of sounds and smells and conversations and moods of others to be uh, engulfing and difficult to bear and may secretly wish they didn't have to, in fact, do all of this, live up to all the social expectations. So there's always a, there's always a flip side to this. So beyond the compare and despair, the sense of cognitively, consciously uh, monitoring how we're doing and when it seems like we're other people are somehow 
having a better life of it, the attendant self-referential thought, the mood plummets, the shame spirals and all that that can be activated. The holidays can also be, I'm sure you're aware, triggering. What, what does that mean? A trigger is when stimuli in the present moment in some way unconsciously reminds us of wounding painful events from the past. These uh, past emotionally painful events are often implicit memories, which means that we're not consciously uh, even aware that they might have even still be there in our memory banks. Some happen very early in life. Some happen during times when we were drunk or dissociative or whatever. But there's a veritable uh, morass of associative memories generally stored and organized by the right amygdala in the right temporal lobe and other regions of the brain. And these memories are unintegrated, which means they're not consciously things we can recall, but they're there nonetheless. And when something in the present reminds us in some way of these painful events and from long ago, times where we felt rejected in middle school, times where our parents weren't responsive to our needs, times where um, we longed to be uh, receive love and appreciation we didn't get at times where we went through uh, unpleasant interactions with loved ones or, or breakups, whenever something in the present reminds us of these implicit memories, the past explodes into the present, not as memories we can recall. We don't actually recall the events, but we feel the feelings. The, we feel literally the impulses and the affects of the original event. So someone who in the present is feeling lonely and not invited to holiday gatherings, um, that experience can, can activate old memories of social, extremely painful social exclusion dating back decades. And now while as adults, we can deal with the fact that we're not, uh, having many or any social invitations, we could survive that. But the emotional activation, the flooding of the feelings from periods in our life where exclusion was extremely unbearable, we'll start to feel those affects. So we're no longer in a in our psyche is a cohesive state. The left hemisphere is aware it's 2021, that we're adults, that this season will pass soon enough, but the right brain can now be remembering the feelings of being a child who was not invited to um, their friend's birthday party. Um, for many of us, the holiday season in and of itself might activate memories of, sub, of family substance abuse or uh, family conflicts. Uh, holidays in the adult years 
especially lonely ones, can activate a flooding of feelings associated with, again, rejection and abandonment from the past, lost loved ones, family rifts, and just awkward uh, holiday events from the past. For those with attachment wounds from childhood and insecure bonds, uh, this season can be an emotional minefield if we're not feeling particularly uh, cherished and uh, popular. So when something activates a negative implicit memory, the hypothalamus and the adrenal glands work together to secrete stress hormones, namely cortisol. Uh, everything feels very, very real, as if the danger is happening right now. We're, while we're aware that ultimately we'll, we'll get through, you know, holiday seasons unscathed, but emotionally, uh, the... Um, overwhelming sense of loneliness or uh, grief can be almost inexplicable to us, but yet feel very, very real. So let's talk about some of the ways we can address some of these issues. If any of what I've talked about sounds even remotely um, relatable. So Social comparison can be alleviated by locating any gathering of individuals where uh, people are expected to disclose their actual internal emotional experience. Um, this completely undercuts our inclinations towards upwards comparison. Um, the Buddha called this Kalyanamita, connecting with wise or spiritual friends that are honest and authentic and are not uh, essentially trying to perform how well they're doing. Uh, for me, um, I personally uh, have always been able to address the social comparison because in the 27 years of sobriety, I, I still go whenever I can, generally once a week to a 12-step meeting where I get to hear people talking about how shitty and bad their life is, and it feels great. It completely undercuts that sense that I'm that there's these magical, perfect people out there having just endless celebrations and gatherings where everything goes smoothly. And so I really focus on finding, I really put energy into finding the disconfirming evidence the evidence that, you know, in all of the different parts of life, there's not just joy and, and gratitude and, uh, and uh, contentment. There's also inevitably sadness, disappointment, frustration, anger, whatever. And that none of it is wrong or incorrect. The Buddha, of course, uh, in the famous Kisagotami teaching, when Kisagotami was bereft, uh, not bereft, was uh, um, grieving the loss of her child uh, and just uh, uh, the 
loss of so many of her dreams for the future. The Buddha had her go around and talk to all of the families in the town and uh, set it up so that she'd have to hear about all of the death, all of the losses that those different households had had uh, experienced recently. And in hearing those tales, all of the sense of personalizing and taking it as if uh, our experiences are unique were uh, alleviated and her extreme grief over time mitigated and she began to bond with others based on not the illusion that there's some kind of perfect way to live life but by being there for others and opening to others actual experiences and therefore bonding through something far more authentic and we can do this you don't have to be sober or in a, the sort of substance abuse 12-step programs there's countless places where people gather and disclose their internal landscapes this could be not only from refuge recovery meetings and uh buddhist um groups where they meet in person we're going to try to do it towards the end of january if the variants allow us um uh, but you can also find them in synagogues quaker meetings uh don't be a buddhist be a person who goes to any and all gatherings where people are honest authentic and are supportive um also the buddha developed the practice of loving kindness meditation meta and that's been shown by barbara frederickson to be significant in restoring emotional well-being and undercutting default mode operation of the brain self-referential thinking and restoring us to what's called parasympathetic uh settings of the uh, a, uh, autonomic nervous system. So um, the Buddha developed loving kindness, wishing all beings well, and actually even practicing mudita, uh, feeling a sense of um, joy for other people's happiness as a way to undercut what in his time was called Isa, which is essentially very similar to feeling envious of other people's happiness or well-being. So we'll be doing it in the meditation some of the meta practice. Um, and as far as the triggering elements of the holiday season, it's really fortunate that memories are malleable and that they can be changed each time each time a memory is recalled consciously or unconsciously even if it's an implicit memory we're not aware of but we're suddenly flooded with feelings of loneliness sadness bitterness frustration disappointment whatever at that very moment the underlying memory can actually be changed because every time a memory is 
activated, whether consciously, explicitly, or unconsciously, implicitly, that, that memory circuit is now active. And at the end of its activation, it reconsolidates. So what that means is that if each time we're flooded with feelings of sadness, if we look around for more confirming evidence of why we should feel sad for ourselves, uh, we're reconsolidating that emotional pain and we're reconsolidating and cementing that memory of, of social exclusion or, or lonely times in our life as uh, being unbearable because our bodies remain tense and we even look for more evidence to confirm it. But if we're in a state of um, a dual state of consciousness, as some calls it, where we've been flooded by painful emotions stemming from past events, if we stay fully aware of the affect, the emotion that's flooding us, we can actually rewrite the underlying memory. We can reconsolidate it with new information. We can look for evidence around us of that disconfirm this belief of that we're not doing well enough, we're not loved by others, we're not uh, um, we're not uh, smart enough, successful enough, whatever, whatever is the underlying feeling, we can look for what's called disconfirming evidence. There's a whole uh, therapeutic modality, Bruce Ecker's um, work with neuroscience about reconsolidating uh, emotional memories with new information. Um, so we can also, when we're flooded with negative affects, we can breathe and soothe the body and relax. And so we're re-encoding that painful memory with feelings of ease in the body. So we can change our past, believe it or not, in the present. Um, a couple of other notes before we launch into our meditation. Um, altruism has no downside so what and it has extremely efficient ways of changing our sense of self as we can tell from the work of jonathan Haidt and sandra lubomorsky and others so while gratitude practice is not always um that uh can, sometimes gratitude practice works but sometimes if we're really feeling bad, it might not help. But altruism has been shown to be pretty effective in all cases. So by all means, if we're feeling bad, lonely, disconnected, call up someone who we believe might be suffering or lonely. Not only will we connect in a way that's beneficial for us, but it will actually improve our sense of self and it will... Uh, leave lingering residues. Uh, one study showed that simple acts of generosity can, altruism can be uh, recalled in great detail many months after we do them, whereas other forms of um, behavior fade very quickly 
from memory. Um, even if we don't want to join a supportive community, prioritize connection, call friends or acquaintances that don't have any plans, invite yourself to a gathering, no one will care. Uh, just do what it takes where it's possible to uh, create this the feeling of social bonds. And by all means, do things that are soothing, things that you like to do. Do, uh, you know, if you like take that long bath and warm water or hot water or do uh, have that warm cup of uh, hot chocolate. Chocolate does raise both serotonin and dopamine levels or uh, I like to, because I'm a Jew, I, I like to on Christmas go to, my favorite things to go to Chinatown like we New York Jews do, eat my favorite dim sum and then go to get a, a, a massage because that always feels good. So that's probably what I'll do. <laughs> Anyway, I hope tonight's talk was of some interest. And um, uh, now what we're going to do is actually meditate. And so uh, find a really comfortable seated position. So closing the eyes and just trying to cultivate a state of complete uh, ease. Don't try to be a meditator. Don't try to create a body that you think is the proper meditation body. Just uh, find right now a comfortable seated, uh, if you want to lie down or stretch out on a couch, it's all fine. Right now we're just cultivating a state of ease. No expectations to live up to. The Buddha said there's four meditation postures. There's walking, standing upright, there's seated, but there's also lying down. And no one of these postures is any better than the other. And furthermore, he noted in the Satipatthana that you can be mindful and meditative in pretty much any state. So there really wasn't that strict idea that we some people now have of the way you should sit appear when you're meditating, whatever is conducive to ease and well-being is a great place to start. And then if you start to fall asleep, simple trip tricks are just slightly open your eyes a little bit, then close them or take a few faster inhalations than release, or then if, if it helps, then try to put a little bit more effort into the posture. But if you're feeling just relaxed and comfortable, that's great. 
and just find the most soothing ex uh, sensation in your body, whatever is the most comfortable, soothing sensation. So if it's in the palms of your hands, just feel the palms feel into the fingers, the back of the hand, and then slowly begin to spread that ease from the palms of your hands to the wrists. And then spread the comfort, what we call sukha, the pleasant sensations up your arms. For some, the pleasant sensation might be in the belly. If your belly is really soft and not tight, and so just spread these from there. Still others might find a little bit of ease if in the eyes or in the, if your eye sockets and eyes are relaxed, breathing in to that area and then spread the ease through your face and down the neck. And you can begin to integrate the sensations of the inhalation as a way to spread or suffuse ease through the body very slowly. You can use the exhalation as a way to relax. So if you're spreading energy up from the abdomen with the inhalation, when it reaches, the in-breath reaches its apex and you start to release the breath, just relax everything and let the energy flow back down the front of the body. Inhalation spreads awareness, exhalation releases, let's go. Inhalation brings a sense of life and vitality. Exhalation brings a sense of letting go, letting go. So try to make the inhalations and the exhalations as long and smooth as possible. When you breathe in, try to allow in the breath rather than pulling it in. And when you breathe out, think of releasing the breath rather than pushing out the breath, just gently releasing. And the third part of the breath is the pause after the completion of the exhalation. So the ultimate goal is to try to make both inhalation, exhalation, and the pause as 
relaxed, subtle, and with as much duration as feels comfortable. The slower, more relaxed the breathing, the mind will follow. And finally, as we move into silence for a while, it doesn't matter if dozens upon dozens of thoughts intervene and pull you away. That's not the practice. The practice is where you bring your attention back. So it's never a problem if you wind up drifting off into thought or memory or what, or future projections. The key is catching it, bringing your awareness back without any sense of frustration or doing it wrong, you're doing it perfectly right.
So at this point, we'll practice a little loving-kindness meditation as an antidote to any feelings of uh, disconnection. So bringing to mind, if you can visualize uh, someone that you really feel close to, someone that you care about, or someone that you admire. If you are not good at visualizing people in your mind's eye, just whisper in your thoughts their name, the name of someone that uh, in some way either embodies kindness or uh, a sense of um, living uh, a very peaceful, generous, or caring life, or someone that you care about, just whisper their name or visualize them, and then may they be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. You can, in your mind, say, may you be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Now bringing up someone that um, we don't know as well, but to practice this unconditional friendliness and compassion could be someone we see in our day-to-day lives or someone we've just met. or someone we've never met, but have seen somehow, holding their image or name in mind. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be free of stress and suffering. And just see how these words feel as you think them. See if you can 
really wish that for another being, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, and free of stress. And now, if there's anyone that over the course of life you've been disconnected from, perhaps due to people moving on or due to an accumulation of misunderstandings or um, conflict, but just anyone from your past that you did have a strong connection with and would like to practice wishing well, just bring their image or name to mind. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be free of stress and suffering. And if you can authentically just generate a warm smile or some kind of visual cue of really meaning these, these intentions. And lastly, bring up an image of yourself, either as you are today or earlier in life during a difficult period. Just an image of yourself from any age that feels right. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free from stress and suffering. May I be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. And then whenever you feel ready, slowly open your eyes. <laughs>